I can just sorry, Sean. I apologize. Uh, everything I've said has been so out of joint this episode. You can keep this in or put this right at the beginning. I apologize because all of my comments have been like talking about the ending of the movie right off the bat. I apologize. I'm all over the place. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already had more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. Now the moment we've all been waiting for. Winner of best podcast is the podcast War Tennis Shoes. What a terrible name for the show! It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,809 movies on Disney Plus. My name is Sean, and I am here with my two co-hosts, Rob and Bob. And Mr. Bob, how are you doing today? You ended at a nine for yeah. 1,809. What were we at last week? We are at 1,808 last week. But last week, they added three, but we did two extra ones. I already took account of the fact that we did uh, three movies last week. We went above and beyond. Okay, We're yeah. still falling behind. Even adding additional movies every week, we're falling further behind. <laughs> Listener, if, if you want to go hear abject pain tune into our previous week's episode where we talked about john favreau's 2019 the lion king along with 2001's luck of the irish a disney channel original film along with taylor swift's 2020 <laughs> music concert documentary boring conversation folklore uh, something something and something or other but that's not what we're doing this week this week we're only doing one film. So thank God it was a bit of an easier lift. Bob, did you have a good week this week because you didn't have quite as many bad movies to watch? Yeah, I know. I was going to say based on the fact that this week did not involve Luck of the Irish whatsoever <laughs> at all. I'm sorry. That's just such a funny thing to say. <laughs> You're going to base good weeks and bad weeks off of that's your barometer from now on is Luck of the I Irish. I have a baseline. Did I watch Luck of the Irish this week? No. Yep. Okay. Then yep. it is a good week. And if for some reason I gotcha. catch myself rewatching it, I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good mantra. That's like a look in the mirror and say to yourself, it was a good week. I'm having a good week and I can do it. That's exactly how I feel. All right. How about you, Rob? How are you doing this week? Uh, did you rewatch Luck of the Irish? <laughs> I did not rewatch Luck of the Irish. <laughs> but uh, spoiler alert, I did rewatch The Banshees of Inishirin because I had previously watched this film uh, with my wife on a lazy Saturday afternoon. So uh, that was my rewatch. Although it is about some Irish people. I argue it's more about the misfortune of the Irish. Sure. Yeah, yep. you could retitle Luck of the Irish, like Luck of the Irish, like semicolon the misfortune of the viewer, and like that would sum up that experience. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I I apologize. I'm on a six-week, five-week hiatus now for picking, okay? I apologize. Sean, how are you doing? I am doing okay, I suppose. I'm doing all right. I had fewer movies to watch this week. It gave me a little bit more time to catch up on sleep, but not much else. But I guess that should come first for health reasons. Yep. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm, You're not I'm, rocking a hot cup of Neocitrin no, tonight, I No, I'm feeling I see, better because so. I actually had sleep this week. Nice. So instead, I'm 
I'm having a little bit of a hard seltzer. Having myself a grand old time tonight. Ah, uh, because February's over and you've cleansed yourself from the foam cocktail. It took a month to recover from cocktail. I, I still get texts from random people saying, is the host of your show okay? Is he alive? <laughs> <laughs> still? There's still people who are listening to it for the first time. Some people are behind. They're catching up. And you know what? We love them too. And when they get around yeah. to hearing this episode sometime in May, I'll tell them, I'm okay, listener. I'm okay. Now, as we're getting to it, this week we are talking about the Banshees of Inishirin, and it's because this is our Oscar special coming out the day after the Oscars. Yeah, everyone will know what happened and uh, who won. Spoiler alert, I'm making a prediction. Everything, everywhere, all at once. I know. What a contrarian view. Everything, everywhere takes everything everywhere all at once all at once it, it, it wins every oscar at the same time <laughs> but you see that works within the context of the film because in the different universes they possibly they announce the oscars in like a different order based on importance so she could be aware of every timeline because the plot of everything everywhere all at once is about a character that is aware of all the different timelines and multiple dimensions parallel dimensions at the same time and she can travel between them what you're saying that, though is that in every single multiple timeline, everything everywhere all at once still wins every single Oscar just in a different order. There is no timeline where everything everywhere all at once does not crush it and sweep the Oscars. I like that. That makes sense to me because I loved that film. It was pretty great. On the off chance that everything everywhere all at once does not in fact, sweep every dimensional Oscars. I thought it'd be fun for us to go through all of the Oscar uh, categories <laughs> and make our own predictions as to what is going to happen for us and for our listener what happened yesterday. So, um, spoiler alert to what already happened for you, listener. But before we get to that, before we get to our Oscar predictions, we have to do our famous, our world famous segment What's it called, Rob? It's called, did anybody write a review this week? Did anybody write a review this week? Let's take a look. Let's take a peek. Did anybody write a review this week? Um... I was about to burst out laughing when you said our world-famous segment, and then I realized we have reviewers and listeners from Tasmania, and that's, you know, pretty far away, so world-famous. We have listeners in other countries, too, Rob. They haven't written in, but we have listeners in South Africa, so... Welcome to our listeners in South Africa, Johannesburg. Um, we have nice. listeners in India. So welcome to our listeners in India. We have listeners in France. So bonjour to our listeners en France. <laughs> well, we've just lost our listeners in France. <laughs> that made me lose <laughs> them. Know. Wow. They were, they were shaky then. They were shaky at best. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if, if that's what pushed them out, they, they weren't sticking around to the end of this episode. But to answer our world famous question, uh, yes, we do have a review this week. Uh, short and sweet, guys. Five stars. Thank you very much. More than just a Disney pod. This is by Appalachian is hot, hot, hot. Uh, I believe the ch sound is a sh, Appalachian, as in the Appalachian, Appalachian Mountains. Appalachian, I'm sorry. More than just a Disney pod. Five stars. Appalachian is hot, hot, hot. See, now I'm only going to put in the first one. I'm not putting in the second one. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> The guys have great chemistry and banter. You will laugh, but probably also learn something along the way. I think this is honestly our shortest review, and that might have taken the longest time to read it. But thank you very much. Appalachian is hot, hot, hot. Easy to do. Right in app. Just hit five stars and type up a little thingamajigger. Thank you guys so much. 
And if you don't have the Apple Podcast app, you can write us a review on our Facebook page, five stars. You, you can write what you think underneath it in an official review there, or you can email us, the podcast war tennis shoes at gmail.com, and we would love to read it out in a future episode. Now, the Oscars. I'm trying to put people in the mood, okay? Had I known, I would have dressed up. Do we get to do a best dress list? If you want. Although I've arranged that if I go to the bathroom during this segment, someone's going to come fill my seat. So just so you guys know. Don't act all confused when someone sits down, okay? It's just for the audience. It's just to keep up appearances. Uh, I don't know, Bob, who's your best dressed at the Oscars this year? Is Kate Blanchett going to the Oscars? She's been making some headway about rewearing a dress from a previous award show to a more recent award show, which I respect. So I'm going to give it to her. Excellent. I'm pretty sure she is there. I'm pretty sure she's nominated for Tar. Perfect. Then, yeah, she's my pick. Rob, what about you? Who's best dressed at the Oscars this year? I'm going to say Ki Hui Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once. That man, I like, uh, he looks good in a suit, dude. He looks good in a suit. Fuck, does he look good in a tuxedo? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say, uh, Michelle Yeoh. Yeah. That was, that was pick number two. I was, Going between the two of them. So now that we've given out the most important Oscar to best dressed yep. at the Oscars. <laughs> we all named someone different. <laughs> well, there's three winners to that award. <laughs> it's it's best dressed um, male, best dressed female, and best dressed other female. Those are the three Oscars. That's the right it is, yeah. yeah. Writing, original screenplay. The nominees are The Banshees of Inishirin by Martin McDonough, Everything Everywhere All at Once by The Daniels, The Fablemans, written by Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner. Little known fact, probably not little known because I'm sure they're going to say it at the actual broadcast of the Oscars, but this is the first time Spielberg was nominated as a writer. Uh, Tar, written by Todd Field, and Triangle of Sadness, written by Ruben Ostland. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Uh, question. I saw this come up and I was like, I think I saw a trailer for Triangle Sadness. Don't stop me. Don't tell me what it is. But my understanding of this film, if I'm thinking of the right one, it's the one where everyone gets food poisoning on a sinking ship and they shit all over the place. Maybe. Um, I assumed it was an adaptation of Flatland. But what do I know? And now I'm going to IMDb it, but keep going. <laughs> well, that's it. What, who, who's going to win? Bob, who's winning? Best, uh... Original screenplay. Haven't been a fan of any of Spielberg's work in a really long time, although they'll probably give it to him just because the Oscars are old and crusty. You think it's going to go to Spielberg? Did Snorhorse win any Oscars? Like, I remember it was... Snorhorse? <laughs> Snorhorse? <laughs> it was nominated. Best horse. Best horse. <laughs> if you've ever actually seen footage of the horse from the stage production of War Horse, it's phenomenal. It is like... I've seen the life-size puppet of it and the amount of puppeteers working on it. It is fantastic work. And then you make the movie with an actual horse and it's suddenly not interesting. <laughs> uh, I never saw War Horse, um, but I did see a production of – um, um, Yes. Fuck. What's the other horse play? Uh, not, not the one um, where he loves a horse as a brother. The one where he loves a horse in a romantic way. We, Bobby, we saw. Yeah, you, you're, you're talking about Equus, which uh, Rob and I actually. <laughs> Rob and I saw Equus in England. Uh, we didn't see the Danrad one. We saw Alfie Allen's penis. Oh fuck! I saw the Danrad one. You did. That's right. Okay, that's best horse then. I don't think Snorhorse is nominated this year. Who's winning best <laughs> yeah. horse this year, Bob? Um, <laughs> Minnie the Pony from Banshees of Nishiran. All right, best horse. I can't wait for that one I to mean, be I mean, I gotta agree. I gotta agree. <laughs> I don't know any other films that had a horse in it this year nominated, so best horse. Um, <laughs> what are we talking about, best writer? 
<laughs> weird best uh, best <laughs> we, original we, screenplay. Yeah, we, we skipped all the other categories <laughs> to best horse. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the write-up right now. <laughs> Tune in for our Oscar predictions, where we do best dressed in three categories, plus find out the surprise twist of who wins best horse. <laughs> Fuck it, Martin McDonough. Yeah, All right, did. Martin McDonough's taking best writer. All right, adapted screenplay. All Quiet on the Western Front by Edward Berger, Leslie Patterson, and Ian Stokel. Glass Onion, colon, A Knives Out Mystery, written by Ryan That's Johnson. Adapted? Living, written by Kazuo Ishiguro. Top Gun Maverick, screenplay by Aaron Kruger, and, not Ampersand, and, Eric Warren Singer, and, not Ampersand, and, Christopher McQuarrie, semicolon, story by Peter Craig, and, not Ampersand, and, Justin Marks. That means there are five writers writing five different versions of the Top Gun Maverick screenplay. My God. So, little behind the scenes uh, for anyone who isn't aware of the technicalities and union rules of that when you see writers written for screenplays or stories if the credit goes to more than one person and they're listed using an ampersand symbol that means those people worked on the screenplay together or they worked on the script together as a team yeah they're like a writing duo or a writing duo or even a trio although that's less common but it's the same screenplay it's essentially more than one person worked on a draft if it's an and, like the word and, that means it's different drafts, but their contributions survived through the drafts to a significant degree, such that the guild is awarding them credit on the screenplay, regardless of whether or not they wrote the final draft. Top Gun Maverick, the final draft, was written by Christopher McQuarrie because the dude was on set <laughs> and they were just rewriting it as they went because that is how Tom Cruise makes all of his films now. Yep. Uh, last one I forgot to mention. Women Talking Screenplay by Sarah Polly. Okay, Bob, who is going to win Best Adapted Screenplay? Bob, are, are you uh, are you just going to Bob? Are you just asking Bob these? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it might be funny. I'm rooting for the home team on this one, Sarah Polly. Nice. I think it's funny that Ryan Johnson is cursed with that colon, a knives out mystery that he hates so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious, why is that one an adaptation like Glass Onion? Sequels are considered adaptations because they're based on characters oh, created right. by. Oh, okay, I see. I, it is weird. I, I agree. Like, it is essentially an original screenplay. But then again, Top Gun Maverick is an original screenplay. I mean, as much as you can call Top Gun Maverick an original screenplay. but <laughs> Rules, right? This is interesting because this one actually, I don't know if this one is an obvious win. Uh, Top Gun, I, know, right? I think probably has a shot at it. I actually think that too. All Quiet probably is the front runner. I think All Quiet won the BAFTA. It, All Quiet on the Western Front is a German film that swept the BAFTAs, but like, Nobody in North America saw it because it's in German. Uh, so it might not yeah. win the Oscars. Let's uh, Netflix pick that one up, right? I believe so, yes. But they picked it up as a distribution deal Yeah, because it's it's just a German film. I think it could be – I'm going to go with Top Gun Maverick. I was thinking that too, honestly, because I was like, they're going to give it something. It, it They, they got to give all of the like special effects and whatnot to Avatar. But it might win like editing or something. There was as much – plain as possible like the visuals in top gun maverick and like shooting was like the movie looked fucking amazing maybe i'm overstating it because to be perfectly honest like th that is not an oscar-winning screenplay but <laughs> I, 
think Bobby might be right. Women talking might be. Yeah, yeah. That one. That one seems like a good pick. Honestly, the yeah the surprise Top Gun they may give it that one just because they can't give it anything else. I mean, like, and, and you expect whoever's like giving the award to be like that other whole little less obese. <laughs> <laughs> um, visual effects. Do I even need to list it? Does it matter? That's, that's Avatar, right? It's Avatar. Avatar's gonna. Be. Although, remember what they did last year? That Avatar was out, so 2009. They gave it to Ex Machina, or no, right? no, no, no. Avatar won in 2009. Ex, oh, sorry, Ex Star Machina Wars. beat The Force Awakens, which right, 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 is still absolutely shocking and an insane thing to happen, and just goes to show how much of a joke the Oscars are in terms of like people just voting for the better movies because Ex Machina is a much better film than Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Ex Machina is a masterpiece. I fucking love that film, but Star Wars: The Force Awakens, Industrial Light and Magic, like fucking crushed the special effects on that. Yeah, and it's like After Effects doing Ex Machina. You know, <laughs> like they're just rotoscoping <laughs> out like yeah. one character's like see through stomach. It's very strange that that one, but whatever. Uh, short film animated. The boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. The flying sailor. Ice merchants. My year of dicks. <laughs> an ostrich told me the world is fake, and I think I believe it. Oh, I'm going with that. That's a yeah, great title. Yeah, that's an amazing title. That one. <laughs> I think, I mean, honestly, these all have really good titles for the most part. The shorts. Uh, production design. All Quiet on the Western Front. Avatar, Babylon, Elvis, and the Fablemans. Babylon has been taking a lot of the awards on production design leading up to this apparently it's a terrible film that everyone hates but people are like well brad pitt's gonna have my legs broke if i don't give it something so (laughs) this movie seemed like oscar bait to me or it's this like larger than life movie about hollywood with the expectation that hollywood was gonna eat it up and then like literally no one gave a fuck as long as those movies are like half decent they sweep the oscars that's how bad babylon has to be that's how unwatchably (laughs) bad it is that it's a movie about hollywood and Hollywood is like, no, thanks, I'll pass. Okay, best picture. Oh, wow, that's like halfway up this list. All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water. You're, you're picking Babylon for that then? That's what we're going with? Oh, sorry. Did you want to say something else for production design? No, no, I'm just saying that we didn't, I didn't actually made a decision, so that's what I was checking. I would go with Babylon. I, I, I kind of want uh, Avatar to win because they're just like, there wasn't a set. I mean, I know it's digital production design. But. If like, if that's the thing too, is if like Babylon is as highfalutin as it thinks it is and it's like, that's right, you lost to Avatar Way of the Water. <laughs> the movie with no set. <laughs> yeah. Set decoration for Avatar The Way of Water is credited to Vanessa Cole. And I understand that there's a lot of conceptual work that goes into that. And so I'm sure Vanessa Cole was involved in the set decoration, whether or not it was practical or computer generated. That being said, I do think it's funny if someone like that wins and they're like, what did you design? Well, I designed the chair that's a director that James Cameron sat on. <laughs> well, he told the special effects team what to do. He let me choose the font. I went with Papyrus. <laughs> All right. Speaking of which, best font. Is it going to be that Avatar font? It's not Papyrus this time. It's a technical award, right? <laughs> best font, technical <laughs> award. It's <laughs> so dumb. Everyone's turned off. You better cut this really short, Sean. <laughs> No, this is the episode. This is the whole episode. Um, (laughs) Best original song. Applause from Tell It Like a Woman. Music and lyric by Diane Warren. Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick. Music and lyric by Lady Gaga and Blood Pop. Lift Me Up from Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Music by Thames, Rihanna, Ryan Coogler, and Ludwig Goranson. Lyric by Thames and Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler has a lyric credit on Lift Me Up? Natu Natu from RRR, 
And this is a life from Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is music by Ryan Lott and David Byrne. And Mitski, lyric by Ryan Lott and David Byrne. That's cool. The, I think they're going to give David Byrne the Oscar. I'm going to go with RRR. RRR didn't get a lot of nominations, but there's a lot of people who love it. And I don't know if you haven't seen it, but that Natu Natu sequence is mind-blowing. So... This is their opportunity to give them something. So Bobby went, this is life. You went to Natu Natu. I'll do Hold My Hand by Top Gun. <laughs> the Lady Gaga song? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Give her another one. That's a good thing that there's three that they hand out for best original song. Yes. Yeah. Best original yep. song and best dressed both get three Oscars. <laughs> uh, original score, All Quiet on the Western Front, Babylon, Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and The Fablemans by John Williams. It's not going to be The Fablemans. At this point, That's he's just getting the Meryl Streep slot. Yeah. All right. I guess the only other one to talk about is actor. That's that's the only one that's up in the air. Is it going to be best actor in a lead role? Is it going to be Brendan Fraser? Fraser? Fuck. Yes. Brendan Fraser, Colin Farrell, or Austin Butler? I'm going with the Fraser action. The obvious choice is Brendan Fraser. Um... I will admit, I did go and see Elvis, and I actually really liked it. Um, Really, really enjoyed that film. Thought Austin Butler was fucking awesome in it. I can totally see how he would win it. Uh, I do think the narrative is going to lead people to say Brendan Fraser, just because Austin Butler is so young. People are going to think that he's going to have lots of other opportunities. I actually think Colin Farrell could take it before Brendan Fraser. Because he's not nominated for, like, Penguin or Supporting or anything, is he? No, he's only nominated for Banshees. He won a bunch of critic awards, but he hasn't won any of the big ones. But he could still kind of surprise. It's like a come from behind. And I, that's funny. I was actually going to talk about that more in the movie where, uh, when we get to reviewing the film was that I, I've actually come to really, really like Colin Farrell over the past few mm-hmm. years. Dude's and awesome. The performance that actually won me over for him was Phone booth. season two of True Detective. <laughs> Did you ever see The Lobster? No, I haven't gotten around to it yet. Oh, my God. It's one of the most horrifying films I've ever seen in my life. But he is very good in it. It's hard to watch, though. There's another Irish indie film called On Dean that he's in. That I, I that was the that was actually another film that I saw that and was like, oh, this is good, and he's very good in it. And then I watched the second season of True Detective, and every time he popped up on something, I was like, okay, he's not just bullseye. Like he's an actor when you give him something nice to do. <laughs> I don't know. He was pretty good in Total Recall as well. Just saying. Never saw but it. But dude can, like, crush it in Banshees, but he's also really good in those dumb, like, Hollywood leading roles, too. I liked him. He was great in SWAT. Like, honestly, I don't think I've seen a uh, Colin Farrell performance I haven't liked, legitimately. No, I agree with that, too. Um, all right, so the best Colin Farrell performance goes to... Brendan Fraser. Uh, I guess out of Banshee <laughs> and Penguin. I think, yeah, that's kind of the thing. Is like He gave two really good performances in a year that were very different from one another, so I could see him being the like, haha, you thought it was going to be the obvious ones, and Colin Farrell sneaks in for the win. Which performance do you think takes the Oscar for best Colin Farrell performance? Oh, his eyebrows. Hands down. Colin Farrell's eyebrows takes the Oscar for best Colin Farrell performance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. So just to summarize for all the listeners, um, you can double check us, but I'm pretty sure we're going to be right. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once <laughs> yep. wins everything, everywhere, and all at once in every single dimension, <laughs> except for the following awards. Best horse goes to the horse from Banshees of Inishirin. Best font goes to Avatar, because they got to get something. Yeah. And uh, best dress goes to a three-way tie between Michelle Yeoh, uh, uh, Ki Hui Kwan, and... Um, Kate Blanchett. 
Kate Blanchett, thank you very much. We will uh, accept our congratulations um, in oh, person. And and best Colin Farrell performance. Oh, goes best to Colin Farrell performance eyebrows. goes to Colin Farrell's eyebrows. Um, okay, moving on yeah. to the main feature of our episode. We're talking about... Colin Farrell's eyebrows, the banshees of Inishirin. I, I really, I was r- waiting to see if Rob was going to make an eyebrows of Inishirin joke in there. <laughs> Especially because, like, the past few days, like, all day yesterday, he was just te- texting me pictures of Colin Farrell's eyebrows. He's got good eyebrows. The banshees of Inishirin was written by Martin McDonough, who started as a playwright in the 90s. His first three plays are considered somewhat of a trilogy, The Beauty Queen of Lenane, Skull in Canamera, and The Lonesome West. All three take place in Lenane, which is a town that Martin McDonough lived in when he was younger. Uh, he followed it, he followed that up with a, another trilogy, uh, which take place in the Aran Islands off the coast of Western Ireland. Those three are called The Cripple of Inishman, the Lieutenant of Inishmore, and the Banshees of Inishir. <laughs> All are published except the Banshees of Inishir, which was never published and never performed outside of the United Kingdom and Ireland. It's not clear how much it has to do with this movie. Uh, my research suggests perhaps quite a bit. Um, there's an article from the New York Times in 2010, where they were talking about a then-contemporary play by Martin McDonough called A Behanding in Spokane. So, yes, this guy deals with a lot of reoccurring themes. Um, Behanding in Spokane uh, starred um, Christopher Walken, and it was his first story set in <laughs> the United States. And in that interview... Oh, no! I don't got a hand! That's, so you've seen it then? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's perfect. That's that's Martin McDonough dialogue through and through. <laughs> and in this interview with Martin McDonough, they talk about the Banshees of Inishir. Keep in mind, this is 2010. This is 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And in the interview, they say that the play was a portrait of an aging writer with declining skills. And Mr. McDonough thinks it wasn't very good, but he wants to re- revisit it when he's older. So I'm going to assume that this movie, The Banshees of Inishirin, is essentially him remaking, at least in theme and spirit, what he had written as the Banshees of Inishir in the mid-90s. Now, the title change doesn't really matter that much, much because to the best of my understanding, looking into this, Inishirin is not a real place, but translated from Irish Gaelic, it just means the island of Ireland. Okay. Innis is island, and then Ireland in Irish Gaelic is usually... Airy, like air, mm-hmm. or depending on the conjugation, sometimes it's Erin. Or in a Sharon is just still the island of Ireland with slightly different conjugation mm. that I don't really fully understand because I don't speak Irish Gaelic. Um, and I find this fascinating because I fucking love Martin McDonough. I have read Cripple of Inishman and The Lieutenant of Inishmore. I fucking love both of them. The first Martin McDonough play I ever was introduced to was I saw a performance of The Pillow Man shortly after it premiered in New York. Weirdly enough, I believe its second performance in North America was in Regina, Saskatchewan. (laughs) And like, I was one of four people who saw it in Regina. I think I remember you talking about that play to me. It was amazing. I was like, I just saw the best play in my life. It's called Pillow Man. Was that when you were like back and forth working in Regina when we were yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was working in Regina at the time. Uh, an actor I knew was performing in it. It was a local Regina theater company um, who did it because their 
artistic director had seen the performance in New mm-hmm. York and like, this is the best play I've ever seen. I want to do this later this year in Regina. And they had to like get permission from Martin McDonough. And it was of very course. difficult. And they lost a ton of money because <laughs> it was very expensive Nobody to get that wins. permission. But it was well worth it because me and three other people saw it. And we thought it was amazing. I've seen a, I've seen a production of The Lieutenant of Inishmore. When I lived in Ottawa, one of my instructors was in a production of it. So we all, a group of us all went to go see it. And as you said, it's, I I really, I really enjoyed that play. Uh, When he transitioned into making films, his first film was In Bruges, also starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Uh, He then did Seven Psychopaths, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and now The Banshees of Inishirin. So, Bob, have you seen... Uh, or read any of his other plays? I've seen In Bruges a few times. Really enjoyed that film. I watched Seven Psychopaths once, and it's not that I didn't enjoy it, but it was a film that I felt after watching it once I didn't need to rewatch it, because I was like, okay, I, I know what happens here. I kind of enjoyed like the meta structure of it, where it's like, oh, it's yeah. a writer writing about what's happening, and it, like, that that is very fun. I kind of agree. That would probably be my least favorite of his films, although I did enjoy it when I saw it. I didn't feel like it had the same kind of character depth as the other three. I felt like In Bruges and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and spoiler alert, now Banshees of Inishirin, affected me quite deeply. All three of those films really felt like, you know, they kind of got to the soul of humanity. Um, whereas Seven Psychopaths is more just kind of like a f- yeah. fun romp, if that's the right word to use. <laughs> it, 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 it's a lot it of is. murders in it. But, <laughs> but, but, but that's also the thing, too, is that's something with a lot of his work is um, he does not shy away from violence. And it's usually very no. graphic and very deep. It's like, again, when that stuff with Seven Psychopaths came up, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is Martin McDonough for sure. So as I mentioned, he has a lot of reoccurring themes in his work, uh, one of which is obviously Irish history. And he deals a lot with the troubles and the history of turmoil within the country. And I made a joke comment, I think, a few episodes ago when Banshees of Inishirin went on Disney Plus before I had seen it. And I said, well, like all of Martin McDonough's work, it's probably about the troubles, which mostly was directed to the fact that when I saw three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, I was like, oh, he's doing something about America now. It's probably not going to be about the troubles. And then I walked out. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that was about the troubles (laughs) because it's about cycles of violence and about what drives people to self-destruction through revenge and hatred of their neighbors. And that also, I think, turns up in this movie. Although, spoiler alert, even though most of the reviews that I have seen and commentary on this film seems to tie it directly to the Irish Civil War and Irish history, because there are some pretty strong allusions to that in the film, I think it has less to do with that than even, like, three billboards. But we'll get into that in more detail. Um... And of course, just warning for everybody else, we are going to be doing spoilers for this movie. It's relatively new, so if you haven't seen it yet, uh, just be warned. Having no idea what Martin McDonough looked like, I just went onto his IMDb page. He's a handsome if man. Sean William Scott and Sting had a kid. He looks identical. He looks identical to a fictional character that you've created in your head. Yes, Rob. He looks, he looks identical. identical to this character that you yeah. have created in your head. I don't know, man. To this fantasy world where those were Sting... Has sex with that actor, <laughs> Sean William Hell Scott. Yeah. And, to get, and to get, there's a family. They're all three watching the Oscars, where Michelle Yao and the rest of the cast of everything ever all at once just swept the board again. Yep, uh, Rob. So you don't have much of a background with Martin McDonough, then I take it. I have seen him Bruges, and uh, you told me about that play that one time. Cool. 
All right, then. <laughs> what was interesting about the... I mean, I'm sure all the other ones do this, but the production of Lieutenant of Inishmore I saw um, with... Like, you know, the, as that play centers around uh, the lieutenant's cat being killed, they used... They had an actual cat um, in the production, which they said... Like, again, one of my instructors was in the play, and it was like... They, they were, like, casting that cat, like, trying to find a cat that can A, be on stage, B, follow direction, and, like, C, not freak out because everyone's watching. And then one of the students said, like... Did you have a separate script in case the cat didn't react? And they were like, yeah, we did have to do that because we were using a real cat. So we did have a, like, what if the cat doesn't do what we want? Like, well, we'll just say these lines instead to, like, tie the play together. <laughs> Was the line, fucking cat? <laughs> <laughs> this is all your fault. <laughs> Blame it all on the cat. Uh, the cat's probably a Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of the gist of the play. <laughs> uh, Rob, how does this movie begin? You always throw this to me, Sean. All right, fine. Bob. No, 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 no. I will do it. No, I will do you it. don't get it. You, I'm not doing it. No, Bob. How does this story begin? If I'm not mistaken, it was with one of the funniest shots I have ever seen to open a film where Bar Darby will get on the little people. You could not have a more Irish opening to a film if you tried with the beautiful green hills, people pushing their carts, their horses, and a rainbow in the water. And like, I could not help but laugh because it was the funniest <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. The movie introduces Colin Farrell's character as he walks out from a rainbow with a giant grin on his face. A yeah, giant yeah, yeah, yeah. Irish grin. It's amazing. And the cinematography is gorgeous as fuck. Like, fuck, yeah. does that look amazing. I didn't take very many notes watching this film. I wrote two of them down, which was, goddamn, this is beautiful. Well, the cinematography mirrors the atmosphere of the film, because as the movie continues, uh, the landscape and the visuals get darker, they get bleaker, they get grayer. Right at the beginning, though, fuck, Colin Farrell doesn't know what he's in for, so it's all fucking rainbows. <laughs> and so Colin Farrell plays uh, Porrick. And Brendan Gleeson plays Colm. And I know that, uh, I believe I read that Carrie Condon, because you were just getting to her name, she was actually in one of the productions of The Cripple of Inishman in Ireland as well. Yeah, she started on some of those theatrical productions with Martin McDonough. And so Carrie Condon, uh, she plays Siobhan. Uh, Barry Keoghan plays Dominic. And I'm pretty sure it's Keoghan, although the Critics' Choice Award said Keoghan, uh, which may or may not be the correct... Gaelic pronunciation, but in interviews where Barry introduces himself, he says Keoghan, and in one interview where they say, are you sure it's not Keoghan? And he says, I've always said Keoghan. Maybe I'm wrong. So <laughs> I'm going to say Keoghan. We'll get to him, but he was way, 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 way too good at being fucking irritating. He's carving out a niche, I guess. Um, <laughs> Barry Keoghan is carving out a niche as a Irish Paul Dano, I think. After Colin Farrell walks out from his rainbow, then what happens? <laughs> Fuck Divino. No, he goes to, uh, Callum, Colm, Brendan Gleeson. Uh, he goes to his house and he knocks on his door and says, Hey, bud, you want to go get a drink? Uh, and, uh, Callum doesn't respond, just sits there smoking. And, uh, Colin Farrell walks away, looking all confused like, and goes to the bar. I did quite enjoy this whole bit about, uh, how they kept saying, Are you guys rowing? I, I don't think we're rowing. Like, I loved that whole back and forth banter that they had. I loved all of the dialogue in this, the whole film, in this movie. It's, it was very, uh, playwright dialogue yes like it was absurdist to a large degree people spoke in circles a lot of the time but i found it both darkly humorous as well as full of depth and meaning and and heartbreak and all sorts of stuff i i really love my wife had said too she said you know you you can 
you can tell he's a playwright because this this film was all dialogue driven. Yeah. But in her own words, she was like, but the performances are so strong and the film is so beautifully shot that it carries and the whole thing works. Every afternoon at two o'clock, Colin Farrell goes to Brendan Gleeson's house and they walk down to the pub and they talk away the day because they live an idyllic Irish life where he works for a few hours in the morning uh, with his donkey and his produce and then they just go shoot the shit at the pub until night falls and then he goes back home and he falls asleep. And Colin Farrell is very happy to continue this tradition, but Brendan Gleeson is not because he says, fuck you. I, I think that's the whole film, right? They just keep that saying- That is really the movie. I was, I was kind of joking with Rob. I was like, I was like, it's going to be interesting going through the plot points of this film because like over the two hour runtime, I think like 10 things happen. You know, it's so funny. Rob, you said you didn't take any notes. Bob, you say like, there's nothing that happens in this film. I took so many pages of notes. <laughs> I took like 15 pages of notes. Most oh of it God. is not particularly useful because it was just me writing down every line of dialogue yep. that I was just like, oh, fuck, yes. Oh, fuck, yes. There is um, a lot to talk about. Um, and I, that was me being cynical. Um, I actually kind of wanted to just watch this movie and... So I didn't actually take any notes for it because I was like, I don't, I don't want to pause and take notes and and let it like wash over I, you. Not, not that I complain about it, but but it is a thing that sometimes happens. Now when we watch a movie, you have to stop and take notes and do things. And this one I actually didn't because I was like, I just want to sit and enjoy this film. Mm-hmm. I did watch it last night and I do remember what happened. But yeah, this was the first time for the podcast. I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna watch this film. He goes to see his sister and he says, Brendan Gleeson won't come out of the house. We always go to the pub at two and he doesn't come out at two. And she's like, well, maybe he doesn't like you anymore. And she's saying it <laughs> jokingly. And she's like, just go to the pub by yourself. What do you care? You don't need to sit with him every time. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go to the pub by myself then. So he goes down to the pub and they're like, where the hell's Brendan Gleeson? You can't be here by yourself. You should go get him. And he's like, all right, I will go get him. Because he's just very affable. He just does whatever anyone tells him to do. Not because he's simple, but just because he's so easygoing. He doesn't have any baggage. He's just like, okay, yeah. All right, I'll go. I'll go try him again. Maybe he'll say yes this time. And so he goes down to his house, and I want to make some notes here. Second time he goes to see Brendan Gleeson, um, the door is open. It's unlocked, but Brendan Gleeson isn't in there. But Brendan Gleeson has both left his music running and he's left the fireplace on. Colin Farrell walks through his house, and you do get a sense of the Brendan Gleeson character. And what you can see is that. He's a musician. He has a fiddle, but he also has artwork on the walls. He has masks that he's made, um, actors' masks. Presumably, he was at one time interested in performance and drama. He has sculptures and he has puppetry, uh, mannequins that he appears to have made himself. So he has kind of dabbled in a lot of different artistic fields, perhaps a man of uh, many skills, but perhaps one who hasn't pursued any of them to the lengths that he had wished he had. Colin Farrell then sees that uh, Brendan Gleeson had quickly ran out of the house <laughs> before he got there, and he's he's running up to the pub without him, so he <laughs> follows him up to the pub. And this whole first 15 minutes basically is just them walking in circles. It's amusing because the dialogue is so funny and the performances are so good. And that's kind of what's very playwright about it. The plot is circuitous and it's just an excuse to introduce the characters their relationships to one another and have them talk in circles in a funny way like 90 percent of all plays out there then when he gets to the pub uh brendan gleason breaks it to him he says i don't like you anymore 
I don't want you to ever talk to me again. We're not friends. I loved how cold Brendan Gleeson is. I don't like you anymore. That's it. You've done nothing. And he's like, you've done nothing wrong. I just don't like you and I don't want to talk to you anymore. Yeah. Really, like, like Rob was kind of saying, like, the meat of this film is the performances everybody's, everybody gives. Colin Farrell's really interesting in this movie and we'll, like, get to it later as the film goes on because... Take a drink. And maybe I did, but you feel quite bad for him because you don't, you don't know what he did and he doesn't know what he did and this seems to really upset him and his turn as things go when you start to feel less bad for him. It's, it's a very interesting, like, turn for the character. Well... You know, the thing is, he didn't do anything. His best friend, and this is, like you said, an island with not very many people on it, and all he does every day is he hangs out with his donkey, and then he hangs out with Brendan Gleeson, and Brendan Gleeson has now told him, I don't ever want to speak with you again, so all he has left is his donkey. Like, he's very sad about this. Yeah. And you can see it in his face. He's heartbroken, and he doesn't know what to do about it, because he's he doesn't even have an explanation. Brendan Gleeson is just like, I just don't like you, and I don't want to be around you. We're also introduced to Barry Keoghan at this point, who plays Dominic. Um, and he's introduced in his first scene. He runs up to Colin Farrell, as Colin Farrell is all wrapped up in his own thoughts, trying to figure out what's going on with Brendan Gleeson. And Dominic has a stick with a hook at the end. And he says, <laughs> look what I found. It's a stick. and It has a hook at the end. What do you think it's for? Do you think it's for... Hooking things? Maybe a stick length away? Well, they all, they all say he's dim. The language they use in the movie is that he's dim. Um, and he's very socially awkward. But Colin Farrell appears to be the only one on the island who's nice to him. And so it's the closest thing he has to a best friend. Because Colin Farrell is nice to everyone. Because as everyone says, he is one of life's good guys. Yeah. What happens next, Bob? He does He does go home and talk to his sister, does he not? Oh, yeah. yeah. He has dinner with his sister. And his and sister they, they has... run across the actual banshee. Yeah. His sister has invited Mrs. McCormick over uh, to do yeah. some knitting by the fire. She, as you'll see in this scene, is an old lady of some sort. No, no. She's a banshee. One of the titular banshees of Inishir. I, having watched this twice, I was paying more attention to her and like earlier on because I was just like, oh, this is just an old woman. But then like, oh, no, she's an actual banshee. Uh, her only lines of dialogue are about death. The first yeah. line out of her mouth is, when did your parents die? Yeah. The second time you see her say something, she goes, there'll be two deaths on the island. And then the last line of dialogue she has is, don't be go killing his dog. That's like, she has like three lines of dialogue and they're all about death. I was like, oh, this is fucking clever. <laughs> oh, and then she also beckons Dominic to death and then tells Dominic's yes. father that Dominic is dead. So yes, yes, yes. yes. She is clearly a banshee. (laughs) They're just having a conversation on a chair, but it's just like she's just talking about death. And you wouldn't actually pick up on that unless you were kind of in a rewatch. There's a lot of dramatic irony like that. Like uh, I skimmed through the movie a second time to take some notes and uh, spoiler alert. So Barry Keoghan's character, like I said, the first thing he says is, what do you think this stick with a hook is used for? And that is the same stick with a hook that is used to fish his body out of the lake. So his first line of dialogue is like Chekhov's hook. Yeah. This is like the end of the movie, but that was the first thing I noticed when she comes in holding a stick. I was like, oh, that fucking kid's dead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, the stick with a hook looks like a scythe, so she literally looks like death. So... Uh, that's much later in the film, but I, that was a moment where I was just like, holy fuck, this movie's good. Because she doesn't, she doesn't have to say or do anything, and you know, you know what's coming. The character as well, I think a major aspect of the character to talk about is that he's abused by his father, uh, physically abused, and it is implied there's also sexual abuse involved in that relationship. Um, his father 
Ecto is the policeman for the island. So that is a complex and complicated relationship. The movie does also have my favorite ACAB line of all time, where he says, don't you think punching a policeman, like you punched a policeman, isn't that a sin? And he says, well, if punching a policeman is a sin, we may as well pack this all in right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's near the end. I really love that speech when Brendan Gleeson is speaking to the priest in the confessional the second time. Um, But that's Mm -hmm. near the end. We'll get to that. So remind me about that when we get there. So this is the scene where they go and he gets drunk with Dominic and they steal the the dad uh, the cops the poaching okay so he goes to the pub by himself but he gets there and he finds out that brendan gleason is there with some other musicians and they're playing music they're playing fiddle music and banjo music and they're singing songs and he has to sit off in the corner with barry we still don't know why brendan gleason doesn't want to talk to colin farrell and colin farrell doesn't know and he has to sit in the corner all by himself moping being like why is brendan gleason so mean me and then him and barry get super drunk together and then they go to his father's house and steal his pochine and then go drink it on the cliff sides and complain to one another and then the next day he once again isn't allowed to hang out with brendan gleason but brendan gleason is at the pub and he forces brendan gleason to explain to him What's going on, right? Well, no, he doesn't force him. He just basically, he says, I was hard on you uh, yesterday. Well, okay. So he confronts, all right. So he confronts Brendan Gleeson in the pub, asking him yet again, why can't we be friends anymore? Brendan Gleeson says, here is something that I just wrote. And he takes up his fiddle and he plays a little bit of a tune. And he says, I wrote that this morning. And tomorrow I'm going to write the second part. And then the day after that, I'm going to write the third part. And then there's going to be a new song in the world that wouldn't be here if I had wasted my time talking with you. Colin Farrell says, well, I'm going to take my beer outside and I don't need to talk to you because it's a shit tune anyway. And then he leaves. And then Brendan Gleeson follows him out and says, I was I was hard on you yesterday. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I just don't want to talk to you anymore because I have a sensation of time getting away from me. And I feel like I have only a limited amount of time left. And I want to spend it composing and making art and not wasting my time with you chatting away about nothing. That gets to the heart of at least what Brendan Gleeson is saying, his mm-hmm. motivation for not wanting to talk to Colin Farrell is. He feels that Colin Farrell is holding him back. He needs more time to pursue his artistic passions because once he dies, he wants to leave something on the world. I want to talk about it now. We're at this point in the plot. Let's talk about Brendan Gleeson's character. Let's talk about what we see going on between these two men, how we interpret this. Uh, Bob, what did you think about what Brendan Gleeson was saying? What do you think about his character? What do you think is happening in the movie at this point? You get to see, you've seen both sides of him now. He's so cold at that first introduction of, I don't like you and I don't want to be your friend anymore. And then the next day, he says, look, I may have come across as a bit harsh. It's nothing personal. I just, as you say, it's this like, it's hard to watch because he's trying He's trying to be nice to him, but you can see how much his words are hurting Colin Farrell. I've had friendships where just for no reason, all of a sudden, you just don't hear from the other person ever again. You don't hear back and you don't know what you did and you don't know what you did wrong and you don't get an answer for it. And you just kind of have to accept it and move on and say, maybe it's nothing you did and you walk away from it. So for, for me, that was kind of a thing that kept coming up for me in this movie. As the movie progresses... Well, don't get Colin too far Farrell's... ahead. Rob, tell me no, what no, you but think I'm about just say, characters here. I'm relating it to Colin Farrell's performance in this scene when he's, like, finding out that his best friend doesn't want to do it, right? He doesn't want to still be with him. As it progresses, Colin Farrell switches to somehow kind of be the bad guy because, like, you are... 
you are left to like be the seeing the perspective of Colin Farrell being like, I just want to hang out with this guy. And the other guy's being like, no, you're not my friend anymore, right? He's coming across as a giant jackass. It's kind of understandable, but at the same time, it's like, there's like five people on this island. What do you got to do with yourselves? Like, you, you, you wrote that this morning. Tomorrow morning, while Colin Farrell is uh, taking his cows out, uh, you could write the second verse like you said you were going to. What are you doing in the afternoon, right? There's no real reason why you can't be buddies with him. I mean, I've always liked Brendan Gleeson as an actor from some of the first times I saw him, which was in Lake Placid, of all things. Uh, <laughs> You're just like Oliver I have, Platt. <laughs> I love Oliver Platt. It had Oliver Platt and Brendan Gleeson and Betty White. Man. And so... I, I mean, anything with him in, I will honestly give a watch. And so I really dug him in this film. But he's such an asshole right off the beginning. He's such a jerk. I think Brendan Gleeson's a monster in this film. And I think as the movie goes on, he's more of a monster. I think it becomes obvious yeah. how much of a monster he is. It's important to unpack what these characters are actually saying. Because I think this movie is very dense in the relationships. And I think a lot of thought has gone into these relationships. And so mm -hmm. like you were saying as a joke, you said, well, he could write, he said he wrote the song in the morning and then tomorrow he's going to write another song, the, the second part. And then the next yeah. day he'll write the third part. And it's like, you can still do that. They don't meet until two. There's no reason yeah, you yeah, can't yeah, exactly. meet him and hang out at two. And the thing is, is that Brendan Gleeson is going through a mid to late life crisis. He is in the throes of a severe depression episode. I think it's quite obvious based on what the priest says to him during sure. his meeting with the priest. And he is self-destructive. And I think this is portraying a character who hates himself and is self-destructive in a way that he is turning it outward he doesn't not like Colin Farrell. Yeah, he likes him. Yeah, the problem is he does like Colin Farrell. The problem is, is that he does like spending time with Colin Farrell. And it's like an addiction where he feels he needs to punish himself in order to become the person he wants to be. He has to suffer for his art. And so that's why he doesn't think he can be around Colin Farrell. He wants to be more miserable so that he can create art, so that he can leave something after he dies. It has nothing to do with anything Colin Farrell is doing. Colin Farrell is fucking wonderful. Everyone says he's one of life's good guys. He's wondering, why aren't I writing songs and he needs someone else to blame? It's like, well, it's obviously not my fault. That's, yes. It's Porik's fault. It's because I waste time every day talking to him. That's why I'm not getting anything done. So I obviously need to cut him out of yeah. my life because he's the problem. And I think there's layers to his understanding of of what he's going through as well. Like, he, he doesn't fully comprehend what he's in because he is in the throes of depression, which is altering what he's able to think about and his cognitive abilities and understand the world around him. And so he's not even fully aware that he likes Colin Farrell. He is sublimating his hatred of himself into hatred of Colin Farrell. And so he's telling himself mm -hmm. it's Colin Farrell's fault. I actually don't like him. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't hang out with him. But he just hates himself. He doesn't hate Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell's fucking awesome. And he's a fucking dickwad. <laughs> what I was saying is how Colin Farrell feels like such a bad guy. It's because Brendan Gleeson is so good, and I probably have affinity for him from fucking Lake Placid, that I'm just like, I don't want Brendan Gleeson's fingers to be chopped off. Spoiler alert. So I'm just like, Colin, don't go over there. You're an idiot. I know you're not doing anything wrong, but don't go over and talk to him. Why can't you just help yourself? It's it's funny, and I think this is kind of going to what Rob's saying, too, is that, like, I was kind of going with, like, this scene specifically, 
those are the emotions I got. It's like, as you say, as the film goes on, you're like, oh no, there's, there's something much deeper here than it's a very loaded film. D- despite my joke, I was like, oh, like 10 things happened to it. It's like, that's a lie. Like 15,000 things happened in this movie. Yeah. Because basically every glance, every line of dialogue, every image that Martin McDonough puts on the screen to juxtapose with a second image means something. It's an extremely dense film, in my opinion. Um, one other note that I'll make, and I tried to point this out earlier, is that I think it is relevant that Brendan Gleeson's demeanor towards Colin Farrell changes when Colin Farrell insults his song. When Colin Farrell says it's a shite tune and he walks out and then Brendan Gleeson follows him and says, I was hard on you yesterday. And he kind oh, of, yeah. it's like a two-faced performance. He kind of, then it's like totally different. He's like, I'm actually going to explain myself now. That was unfair. Well, you know, I'm going to try to not hurt your feelings. And that's what happens throughout every time Colin Farrell is rowing with Brendan Gleeson. Uh, every time that he insults him or he demeans him or says it like it's, it is – then Brendan Gleeson likes him for a very short period of time up until Colin Farrell goes, oh, now we're friends and I apologize. And then he goes, no, 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 don't do that. He says at one point after Colin Farrell goes off on him and calls him a bunch of names, he says, oh, that's the first time he's been interesting and I think I finally like him again. Um, but he doesn't like him when Colin Farrell is insulting him because he wants to be punished. He is extremely depressed and he wants to suffer. Mm-hmm. And he also wants Colin Farrell to fight back because he is in a destructive mood. He wants to just lash out. He's blaming Colin Farrell for his own failures, but he wants Colin Farrell to fight back because deep down, like he does like Colin Farrell. And so when Colin Farrell says, you know, that's a shite tune, that actually deeply hurts his feelings. Like he wants Colin Farrell to like his tune because that's what he matters to him. He wants him to actually really like his song. The fact that he says this is a shite tune, it makes him feel bad. And so he goes out, he's just like, I'm sorry, Colin, please like me again. Please like my song. And then as soon as Colin probably did it, he'd just be like, now don't fucking ever talk to me again. And he'd walk off. It's like an abusive relationship. Like he's a monster. Like, he's an absolute monster in this film, in my opinion. My wife had kind of joked as this movie was over. She was like, there's going to be many an English essay written about this film for many decades. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's a lot to unpack. And it's a lot of it is also, I think, somewhat open to interpretation. A lot, yes. He was going to meet his sister for a sherry, but he's going to go home and sulk. He's like, no, I don't want to go home. Brendan Gleeson doesn't like me anymore. I'm going to go hang out with my donkey. And so she goes to the pub and she yells at Brendan Gleeson. She's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Stop being a fucking baby. And then he's like, I don't know, he's boring. And she's like, you're boring. Everybody's fucking boring. We live on a fucking Irish island. What? Except she keeps saying feckin', but I don't want to go too far into the accent. Uh, loved it. Lo- loved it. Loved. I loved how fucking Irish, how fucking Irish this movie was. <laughs> she's just like, you're, you're such a knob, Brendan Gleeson. Like, you're all fucking knobs. And then the next morning, it's Sunday, so... Colin Farrell goes to the priest and and it's like, can you do yes, me a solid? Yes, it. Can you, yes, can yes, you yes. tell Brendan Gleeson during confessional <laughs> that he should be friends with me again? Which is the saddest <laughs> and funniest fucking thing. And the priest is like, I mean, you're such a nice guy, Colin. Yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> and so the priest does. Brendan Gleeson goes into the confessional and there's two things that are important to note here. The first is that the priest does be like, why are you not friends with Colin Farrell anymore? You should be friends with him. That's not nice. But the other thing is that right at the beginning, the priest says, and how is the despair? Mm -hmm. Obviously, for a long period of time, when he's been going to the confessional, he's been talking about despair. Like, this is a guy who is deeply, deeply in depression. Except he says, oh, it's been better recently. It's been lifted. Not so much. And again, 
that makes sense because he's taking actions. Mm-hmm. And self-destructive actions can feel good to people who are deep in the throes of depression because they feel like they are taking actions to solution, even if they are extremely negative actions that will end in terrible destruction. They temporarily feel like they are making progress. And so he says, he's like, I'm feeling much better now. But he is on the path to absolute self-destruction. And he needs fucking help that nobody is giving him except Colin Farrell. And he's destroying Colin Farrell because Colin Farrell is the one that he's sublimating all his self-hate onto. Mm. So anyway, he gets super fucking mad that Colin Farrell has has sent his sister and his priest after him to beg him to be best friends again, as if they're, you know, in grade two. <laughs> he goes to Colin Farrell and says, the next time you talk to me, I am going to cut off a finger from my hand and it's going to be my fiddling hand. And every time you talk to me, I'm going to cut off another finger. And this scene is so fucking hilarious because of the way that Colin Farrell responds to everything he says. Because Colin Farrell is like, why the hell are fingers your first protocol? Like, what what are you talking about? (laughs) Because it's insane. Yes, it is. It's an insane thing to do. Nobody believes he's going to do it up to and including you. The audience, yeah. you're like, he's not going to cut his fucking fingers off. He's, just, he's yeah. just saying that so he'll leave him alone. Like, he's, he's, he's just being overly dramatic yeah. because this is a – he's an artist. He's just being overly fucking dramatic. Honestly, the fact that they kept this out of the trailers and they were just like, okay, there's this whole thing about him chopping off his fingers. <laughs> I did not see this coming and I did not know where this story was going. Well, Martin McDonough, the last time he did a story about people chopping off their fingers, he fucking titled it A Behanding in Spokane, so <laughs> well, no. this one really came out of nowhere. <laughs> I had actually, um, just as Buzz for this film was kind of starting to stir, I was at a local concert, and I was talking to somebody about my love of Colin Farrell, and we were, because we, we were talking about season two of True Detective, and how we were kind of like, you know, I don't think it's like as good as the first or the third, but it's not a bad season, and Colin Farrell's really good, and he was like, you should keep your eye out for the Banshees of Inishira, and he said, I was just at a festival, and all I'm going to tell you is it's about friends that aren't friends anymore he's like that's <laughs> really all i can tell you as someone he's like just just watch the movie it, when you get the chance watch it and so that, that this has been on my radar for the past like however many months since then yeah i didn't know anything about the um the mutilation job i didn't know that was the plot of the movie at all um i didn't really know anything i thought it was just going to be sad people on an island and see i thought it was going to be sad people on an island but Kind of funny. And I'm not going to lie. I didn't laugh much the first time I watched it. Oh, I did. I laughed at a lot of this. I found it quite I darkly didn't. funny. I didn't. I was too into it. I think I was just too like, what is this? I, I don't think it was the right mood. I was trying to like be like, oh, I heard this is kind of a funny, like kind of like silly, witty show. And I was like, oh, this is dark and depressing and... And I was like, I am not into this. And then the second time I rewatched it, uh, I was like, oh, no, this is absurd. All of the lines of dialogue in this film are absolutely absurd. Cutting ahead a little bit, pun intended, uh, to the first time when the finger hits the door and Colin Farrell's and sees it. And then he's talking to Siobhan and she's like, 
what was that knocking at the door? And he's like, the what? <laughs> they're knocking at the door. Oh, yeah, they're knocking at the door. And then she's like, yeah, what was the knock at the door? Uh, hard to lie. Uh, it was a finger. Like, that is so funny. <laughs> it was very funny, and it's really well performed, too. I was so kind of into the melancholy of it, and it, I wasn't into it the first time, that when they said these absurd lines, I was laughing hysterically the second time I watched it. One other thing I should probably bring up now is that in the background of everything that's going on, is the fact that on the mainland, there is a war happening. And every so often, they hear explosions and gunfire of the war. And that war is the Irish Civil War. So just a little background, the Irish Civil War happened from 1922 to 1923. It followed the Irish War of Independence. So the Irish War of Independence was fought against England for the freedom of Ireland, the IRA being the Irish military fighting against the British military. The treaty that ended that war, uh, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, established a free country of Southern Ireland uh, that would be known as the Irish Free State. Now, the issue here was that the Irish Free State was going to operate with the freedoms of the Dominion of Canada. Now, there's two things to note, being a Canadian. The first is that it's quite a bit different to have certain kind of legal freedoms when you're on the other side of the globe from London than when sure. you're across you know, a channel. Uh, the second thing is that... Canadian freedoms in 1922 were quite a bit different than they are today because this is pre-Statute of Westminster. So in 1922, the Dominion of Canada uh, was still subject to English laws. England mm. could pass imperial laws that applied to Canada um, whenever they wanted. They just passed a law that said Canada such and such and such. That was the law in Canada. Secondly, uh, the highest court of appeal in Canada was was the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was the name for the House of Lords when you were dealing with appeals from Canada. Mm. Prior to 1931, uh, when you're talking about legal precedents, um, the highest judicial decisions come from England, because that's where you appealed all of your decisions from. So if you wanted, if you had a case that you appealed all the way to the top, you literally had to get on a boat. Before 1931. <laughs> hmm. Talking about those uh, Canadian heritage moments, uh, one of the famous ones when I was a kid was about the Persons case where they established that, you know, uh, women could be senators. That was the Judicial uh, Committee of the Privy Council. That was a case that was decided in London, mm -hmm. whether or not Canadian women could be senators in Canada. It wasn't like a free independent country. Yeah. That's what they got. The provisional government signed the treaty. And much of the IRA, the people that had spent the last years fighting and had lost friends and they had been fighting for a free country, said, this doesn't seem quite like a free country <laughs> because we're still subject to England. So what the hell is that? And so very quickly, Ireland devolved into a civil war that was very much 50-50 between the people who wanted peace and the people who said, this is not what we were fighting for. We need to keep fighting. And so they just started killing themselves. And for a year, Jesus. there was a very violent civil war where everyone who six months earlier had been on the same side were suddenly oh, on opposite sides of the fighting armies. It apparently has left lasting scars among the communities of Ireland as people who were on one side or another never forgave one another. It's the, the two people that were friends 
six months before, now they're fighting, right? It's kind of going in between. It's a parallel between the Civil War, what's happening, and what's happening to Colin Farrell and, and Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. Macro dynamics, the yeah. macro environment is mirroring the micro environment. Um, mm -hmm. There's a term called overdetermination in Greek theology that has to do with personal character conflicts being mirrored by macro international conflicts. That's kind of what is going on mm -hmm. here. Um, and I think it is definitely, well, of course, yeah, it's obviously definitely intentional on the part of Martin McDonough 100%. to create that mirroring. <laughs> he draws attention to it multiple times where during this interpersonal, these interpersonal conflicts, there's just gunfire in the background to mirror what's going on, neighbor against neighbor, friend against friend. But having seen some of the commentary and reviews, I've seen a lot of discussion of this film, you know, kind of interpret the ending to be like, oh, it's an analogy for the Irish Civil War. And I don't think it is. It, that might be a small part of it, but I think the depth of what he's, these characters are going through and what he's saying about these characters goes far beyond just a simple analogy. When we get to the end, but that was something that reminded me of the Lieutenant of Inishmore, um, how the ending of the play, the whole crux of that play is this man is going on a killing spree because so he thinks, because someone killed his cat. And then at the end of the play, the cat walks in and then one of, I think it's his father or his uncle's line is something to the effect of, I mean, all of this hate and suffering and violence has all been for nothing because it's, o and because it's over an event that never happened. And you're like, okay, yeah, this plays about something else. <laughs> We're about at the point now where Brendan Gleeson cuts off his finger. <laughs> he chops off his first finger. And he cuts off the index finger on his left hand, his fiddle hand. I'm just going to throw this to you, Rob. Why does he cut off the index finger on his fiddle hand? This isn't a test. I don't know an answer. I'm honestly asking your opinion. Because <laughs> uh, he's psychotic? Uh, it's because he wants to prove to Colin Farrell at how serious he is. He's wanting to say, I told you if... You don't leave me alone. I'm going to. I, I, I don't want you to talk to me because I want to finish my music and I need my fingers for my music. And if you come to talk to me, I'm going to chop off my finger and not be able to finish my music. And if you care about me at all, you're not going to talk to me so I can finish my damn music. And Bob, why do you think he cuts off his finger? I, I agree with Rob that there is this element of to prove how serious I am to you. I will hurt myself in a way that stops me from doing the thing I say I want to do in order to hurt you. And I think specifically the index finger, although I have very limited time playing a violin, I think it's to prove to himself that he can still do it. And then there's a shot of him afterwards still trying to play the violin, and he's struggling a bit because he's cut off his index finger. The one thing that he wanted to do, he has deprived himself of. So when Siobhan goes to speak to him, brings his finger back to him and is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, have you, have you lost your mind? And then, you know, he says, I just want peace and quiet. I just want to make my music. And she's like, it's going to be a bit harder if you cut off your fingers. You're not going to be able to make your music. And then he says, well, now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? And then she <laughs> says, I think you might be ill. And that's because, yeah, like he's he clearly is. ill. Because to me... What is going on is that he never became the artist that he wanted to be. He had dabbled in lots of different kinds of art. You can see that in what is surrounding him in his home. He's now big on music and a violin, but, you know, with no disrespect to the song that he creates, he's he's not a fucking Mozart, despite the fact that he wants to compare himself to Mozart. He's not. Sure. And he knows that. And... 
he is trying to deal with that massive amount of self-loathing and disappointment that he has for himself because he's now realizing he's never going to be the person he wanted to be. And so at first he lashes out and he blames Colin Farrell. But because he is in a spiraling depression, he then goes one step further and he's like, I still have 10 years. I could still make music, but I'm scared that I'm not going to. So I am literally going to cut off my hand to make it impossible so that I can't blame myself. Shit. Throughout the whole film, he's playing this, I'm not the one doing this, you're the one doing it to me. You're you're making me do this. Which is insane, because everyone's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're the one doing this. And he's cutting off his own fingers, and he's trying to say, it's because of you. Not only did you prevent me from making music all my life by being too friendly and awesome to chat with, you're now preventing me from ever future making music because you're making <laughs> me cut off my own fingers. He is having a severe yep. mental health episode, and it's 19-fucking-23 in Ireland, so no one is able to help him. <laughs> That's the funniest part, is what you just said. I got 10 years left, uh, Brendan Gleeson says that. And it's like, Brendan Gleeson... I mean, how young did people die in the 1920s in Ireland? Pretty fucking young. Yeah, pretty young. Well, because he's probably, what is he, like, in his late 50s? 60s? Like, yeah, yeah, 50s, 60s. He's like, I got no I mean, my liver's shot. That's really what this movie is about. It is about a guy, I think, who can't face what he feels is his own failure to become the person he wanted to be. And so he is blaming it on Colin Farrell. <laughs> And so going so far as to cut off his own fingers and saying, you made me do this. Now I'll never be a great musician. I could have been Mozart if it wasn't for you holding up his fucking bloody stump. I think yeah. for me, and this is something, again, my wife and I had kind of discussed, is after the film was over, we were both like, hmm, I think there's an entire layer of this film I don't get because I'm not Irish. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm being reductivist. This is one interpretation, but go on. Yes. Depending on how allegorical you want to get with it, I think there is something to be said for this motif of the civil war of all of a sudden one day two people are fighting for no real reason and the other side is hurting itself to hurt the other person and i absolutely think there is a layer there in commenting on the betrayal of two people who were once best friends in fact brothers essentially who become so viscerally angry that they will kill one another and what does that mean and i think that is certainly a layer there and that I think is it goes to a lot of Colin Farrell's anger because yeah. he spirals into a murderous rage. And part of that is because it's betrayal. You know, it's this person that I saw as, you know, it's essentially the love of his life. He has three people in his life. One is his sister. One is a donkey. <laughs> one is Brendan Gleeson. The closest thing to a romantic relationship he has is Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> um, <laughs> you hope. The betrayal goes fucking deep. Even as... Colin Farrell starts to spiral in his own rage. Like, I, for me, anyway, I, like, this film spiraled me into a deep fucking depression by the end of it, because he was a nice guy, and you see this nice guy doing awful, stupid things. He also just can't stop doing what he's doing, because he wants to know what he did, and why this is happening, and... And also his support structure, Colin yeah. Farrell's support structure is all gone, because his sister leaves... The one person that he talks to is gone, and then his donkey dies. So, like, he has nobody to talk to, and he's just in this spiral of no one else. So let, let's just quickly summarize the key plot points. Um, Things start to spiral very, very quickly from this point. Yeah. So Brennan Gleeson has been inviting musicians 
from neighboring islands to come play his music and kind of have these 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 pub parties where they they, they play songs together and and they sing and they play and they fiddle and, and Colin Farrell can't come and Colin Farrell's not allowed to come he has to stand outside and watch and uh, so <laughs> yeah. this one traveling musician is walking down the road and Colin Farrell picks him up he's like hey do you want to ride and Colin Farrell knows that he's a musician he knows that Brendan Gleeson has has invited him over and so he takes the opportunity to kind of get his revenge. And this is the one time when Colin Farrell isn't a nice guy. Like he gets drunk and he says, like he gets, he goes on angry rants to Brendan Gleeson. But the fact is Brendan Gleeson's such a fucking hideous monster in this film that even Colin Farrell's like drunken rants aren't even that mean. Like he's just telling the truth. He's just like, you're a mean guy. Why are you being so mean to me? Like, it's just the truth. He is being mean to him. Yeah. But this is like the one time when Colin Farrell is like, I'm going to I'm going to get some revenge. I'm angry, I'm going to get revenge. And so his form of revenge is that he takes this man, <laughs> the Brendan, this friend of Brendan Gleeson that he's invited over and he says, "Oh, I've been looking for you. A telegraph came in. It's about your mother." And then he says, "Well, my mother's dead. It can't be about my mother." And he goes, "No, sorry, it's from your aunt and it's about your father." And he says, "Oh, what's happened to my father?" And then he says, "He was hit by a bread van." And he goes, what? And he's like, yeah, he's in dire straits. You have to rush home to see him before he dies. And he's like, he's dying. And it's like, well, or it gets worse or something. You just got to rush home and go talk to him right now. He says, well, no, lots of people get hit by bread fans all the time. <laughs> and then he says, I know. That's how my ma died. And it's so genuinely funny. It's it's a perfect joke. It's honestly phrased like a perfect punchline. Like, this is a joke you would tell, oh you know, like, at, on fucking Letterman or something. The look on the musician's face is one of horror and despair. That's the thing. That's every line in this film. It's like the funniest things. It's like when Colin Farrell's is like, hard to lie about the finger at the door. It's like so it's very funny. straight, but the dialogue is so it's funny. It's ridiculous. I will note one thing that's interesting about this. And I don't want to go too in-depth because I do think this scene is primarily just for comedic effect because it's so fucking funny. But when he gets off, he says, if it's the same driver, I'm going to fucking kill him. You know, it still does go to – there's almost this like yeah. Kill Bill Volume 3 element where there's a sequel <laughs> where like this creates a whole cascade of violence on another <laughs> island. <where> like, <laughs> there's like revenge and families torn asunder and neighbor against neighbor no. all because of Colin no. Farrell's one stupid revenge attempt. So Colin Farrell tells this to Dominic. He says, this is what I did. And he's kind of proud of himself because I think he – thinks he's being taken advantage of. Throughout the entire movie, he's worried that people are laughing at him and they see him as dumb and weak because, you know, his friend doesn't want to hang out with him anymore. And so he's actually kind of proud of himself for like standing up and doing this mean thing. And he tells Dominic and Dominic's like, that's the meanest thing I've ever heard in my life. And then stands up and yeah. leaves and walks away. And Colin Farrell's like, oh, fuck. He leaves yeah. them. They were drinking on a cliff. And he says, I thought you were one of the nice guys. And Colin Farrell's like, no, no, buddy. I'm still I'm still nice. He's like, no, you're not. And just gets up and walks away. And as I said earlier, goes and talks to his sister, says, hey, do you want to be with me? No. And then kills himself. I'm assuming he kills himself. Yeah. So what um, happens is that after, shortly after this Barry Keoghan goes to Colin Farrell's sister and sort of professes his love for her. And she tries to let him down nicely. And he says, yeah, okay. And then he says, I have to go over there now and do the thing that I was going to do over there. And he points towards the lake, which is so fucking dark. Yeah. <laughs> and the punchline of the joke is, oh, is later when he's dead. And you're like, oh, that thing was kill himself. It's a groaner joke, but it's also, you're like, 
I think I'm supposed to laugh at this, but should I laugh at this? <laughs> it's good. Right? It's, when he goes up to Siobhan, she's standing on the lake because she's looking at the banshee who's on the other side of the lake and she's beckoning towards her. But then we realize afterwards that she was beckoning to Barry, who was walking up behind mm-hmm. her because he mm-hmm. is going to die very soon. And she is a banshee of death. Oh, I, I, yeah. He comes up to her and he says, uh, you know, do you want to be together? Uh, and she says, no, I don't think so. And he says, yeah, yeah, no, I didn't think so either. It's like he he was reserved to the fact, but he still went and said it's it. Really I don't know. Sad. That was just it's so heartbreaking really that like he was agreeing with her. Again, I said it. He's so fucking annoying at the beginning of the movie. But you very quickly, you learn of a situation very quickly and you learn why he is the way he is. And you feel nothing but like sorrow for him. Kind of. I think we're wrapping up to the end here. Um Colin Farrell, through a series of events, believes maybe he can still win over Brendan Gleeson, despite the fact that Brendan Gleeson has already cut off a finger. So he tries talking to him again. Despite the fact that everybody in town is like, why the fuck are you still talking to him? (laughs) He cut off his fucking finger. Stop what you're doing. Like, everybody, everyone at the pub is just like... And each time he's like, no, I I think I got a different approach. I think this time is going to work. And so he goes up yeah. and he's like, what if I'm mean to you? Then you won't cut off a finger. It almost works. Well, at any rate, it doesn't. And Brendan Gleeson cuts off the rest of his fingers, throws them at Colin Farrell's house. Then there's two things to make note of here. Number one, okay, Colin Farrell's donkey finds one of the fingers, tries to eat it, chokes to death, and dies. It's very tragic because this was Colin Farrell's only other friend who is now dead. And this is the point. His his and his sister's left the island by this point. She's taken her job and he's on his own. His sister has left the island because she doesn't want to deal with any of this bullshit because she's like, you're all fucking insane. And she gets a job working in a library. So he goes to confront Brendan Gleeson and two things. Brendan Gleeson goes up to him and says, I don't need your apologies. It's honestly a relief for me. So let's just go our separate ways. Which again, I just want to point out This is a self-destructive man going through a severe depressive episode who says it is a relief for him to no longer have the burden of a fiddle hand because then he no longer can disappoint himself by not using it. Mm -hmm. And then Colin Farrell says, your fat fingers killed my donkey. (laughs) Then he says, tomorrow at two o'clock, I'm going to go to your house and I'm going to burn it down and I hope you're inside, but please leave your dog outside because I don't want to hurt your dog. And Brendan Gleeson's very sad about this. He's genuinely sad. He didn't realize, he didn't, he didn't realize he was going to kill the donkey. You can see almost as like his eyes change, like where there's this awakening where he like, he realizes that his actions have consequences beyond the weird manic world he's created for himself that only involve Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And it's like, he didn't even realize that what he was doing was real or that it could affect other people. Like, that's how deep he was into this. Was there ever a point in my life I thought I would be sitting watching a movie trying my hardest not to cry while a man is, like, holding his dead donkey as if it was his, like, lover or friend? (laughs) I'm not even joking. It was one of the hardest scenes I've ever had to watch in a film. And then the next day, he goes to Brendan Gleeson's house and he burns it down, knowing that Brendan Gleeson is inside, and then takes the dog with him. Because... He's not a heartless man. He just wants Brendan Gleeson dead. And so it's revealed during the segment that Dominic is dead. Colin Farrell goes down to the wreckage of Brendan Gleeson's house, and he finds Brendan Gleeson alive and standing on the shore. So he had left the house while it was burning at some point after Colin Farrell had left. And Colin Farrell is genuinely seems a bit disappointed by this because Brendan Gleeson says, I guess we're even now. And then Colin Farrell says, we'd only be even if you'd stayed inside the house. Basically, that's the end of it. He goes to leave and Brendan Gleeson says, thanks for looking after my dog. 
And Colin Farrell says, anytime. Okay. And then- That's the one moment that's heartbreaking. You, you get you get the playwright moment at the end of the film when they're watching the Civil War together and he says, it seems like things are quieting down. Perhaps they'll stop. And Colin Farrell says, they'll just find something else to fight about. Yeah. And I, that was the moment where I went, okay, this plays about a, l- a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's about a lot of like, things. Did you see Colin Farrell's performance in that moment? He reverts back to him for, I want to say, half a second- his performance from the beginning of the movie, he's about to smile and like be like, Oh, my friend. And then he goes anytime. Like he's got this deep voice that he doesn't have. It's his like, I'm going to come to your house and burn it down on Sunday, the Lord's day. Right. But the rest of them, he's just talking really like, you know, jovial. And then he has this little glint of the person he used to be for half a second. And it's just like, Oh, everything's going to be okay. No, it's not. No, it's not. And it's so, oh, that moment killed me. And that's that's how we leave it. And then we kind of pull back to reveal that the Banshee of Inishirin is sitting on the cliffside watching them both. Yeah. Probably because they are going to continue to their graves. That's the end of the movie. Do we have a ranking for it? Bob, what did you think? I do not remember the last time a film ruined my life. Oh, my God. A film. Whoa. Whoa. Let me... This is the week after the Rob trifecta? Oh, my God. (laughs) I am sorry, good sir. I don't mean that in a way of like, Robbie, why the fuck did you make me watch this? Did you cut off your hands? I don't know if I've seen your hand since the beginning of this. (laughs) Okay, there we go. No, his hands are okay, people. I I held up my hands. They're okay. But what I was saying was that like the whole time I watched Colin Farrell, this nice guy spiraled down this pit of despair because he doesn't know what he did wrong and he's trying to his best to fix it and it kind of ruined my night and stuck with me and it ruined my night's sleep it ruined my morning and then i realized how much i fucking liked this movie because it hit me on this level that i don't know when a film has hit me that hard and heavy i don't need to look at the rest of the fucking movies on my list we've talked about it enough and has maybe appreciated more this is number one there's no chance in my life this movie's not fucking number one on my list Everything about it is so fucking good. And it could be about 15,000 different fucking things, and they're probably all right. It was beautifully shot, the performances were fantastic, and it hit this deep fucking chord in the depth of my soul that I don't believe I have. That's how good this movie was. All right, so I think Bobby liked it. Um, Although I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, Jeez. Rob, what did you think? I mean, I got nothing after that. Uh... I mean, to me, this was a movie that I liked the dialogue in. Yes, it was beautiful to look at. Uh, but as Bobby said, this relationship between these two characters, it was hard to watch. And I don't know if you've known anything about me. I have fucking D2 the Mighty Ducks in my top five because that's the type of film I like to watch a bunch of times, right? Robbie has never experienced despair. He uh, (laughs) doesn't understand darkness. Yeah. He cannot relate. So I'd watched this film once before. Had you not suggested, Sean, I would never have watched it again. I thought the performances were great. Uh, like the dialogue, but I was like, that's a sad movie. That's depressing. I don't want to watch it again. I didn't like it. Actually, you know what? Talking it through with you guys has, has put it up my list. It's not that high, but like I would recommend watching it. Um, but I don't know. It's not a film I want to watch again. Uh, so for me, I am putting it, uh, number 14. Below the money, Below Ducks. George of the Jungle. <laughs> 
but above oh, the Three Musketeers. Okay, good. There's some hope in this world. I did that for you guys. I put it above the Three Musketeers. I already have watched this movie twice because I watched it and then I watched it again. Because the first time I watched it, I was like, I'm probably going to get a lot out of watching this a second time. And then I watched it a second time and I'm like, oh man, I got a lot out of watching this a second time. I should probably watch this a third time. So I'm going to watch it a third time and then I'll probably watch it a fourth time. Um, I fucking loved this movie. I can dig into this movie forever and i'm probably still going to find new enlightenment from it from the performances from the dialogue um from just the evocative photography uh it's a beautiful movie like you guys said i can't really add much to what bob said about this i think i was like is this going to be number one or is this going to be number two because i really like muppet christmas carol but like (laughs) this is an actual movie it has actual yeah. meaning. <laughs> it is an actual work of art, and it's just fucking felt puppets singing songs. <laughs> that is an art. After what Bobby said, I can't. I can't put the felt puppets above it. I'm also going to put this at number one. Nice. I yeah. I get it. Um, not my cup of tea. I mean, yes, I I, I agree with you guys, but I don't know, man. I'd rather watch felt puppets singing to each other than a man in the throes of depression depression cut off his hand and then get his house burnt down and a man lose everything that he <laughs> loves in life. That's just not what I want to just subject myself to on a daily basis. That's the difference between me and you. Because when I thought of an ideal movie, yep. it involved all of those things. Right. And so right, right. fuck yep. am I glad that somebody finally made it. That's right. Martin <laughs> finally got my letters. <laughs> Every day you do not write this film, I will cut off a finger. (laughs) Damn, that's good. All right, cool. I think that's the end of the episode. What are we doing next week? Bobby, I believe it's your pick, unless it's a very special episode about (laughs) High School Musical, which it's probably not going to be, but it's coming. I promise it's coming. Bob, what else could it be? That that specific listener has reached out to me and said that every time we bring it up, it's torture. I'm so sorry. It's going to be worth it. Come on. So unless we are finally releasing that listener request... Next week, you'll get to hear an episode as we review Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. All right. Mrs. Doubtfire. Good choice. I was Fuck scrolling yes. through Disney Plus and I was like, holy shit, that's on here. Okay. That, I have to revisit that. I'm I'm interested because I loved that movie as a kid because find me a child in the 90s who did not love Robin Williams. Trick question. They don't fucking exist. <laughs> and I'm interested to see how that film ages. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I have seen it once, but it would have been when I was like, I don't know, 10. So that'll be interesting. I will be interested to revisit that. If any of our listeners uh, have any thoughts on Mrs. Doubtfire, let us know. We will uh, we'll talk about it. See if you guys want to send us an email or a tweet or uh, Instagram or whatever they're called. Uh, yeah, give us a, <laughs> give us an idea um, what you guys thought of the film. All right. Um, so then wrapping it up, uh, I want you to uh, announce that the winner of best podcast at this year's Oscar ceremony <laughs> is called the podcast War Tennis Shoes. Okay. Listeners, this is part of our prediction. And so if we don't win Best Podcast at the Oscars, we will be very embarrassed next week. Okay. Now the moment we've all been waiting for. The winner of Best Podcast is... The Podcast Wear Tennis Shoes. Shocked face! Clapping shocked face! 
kissing the person beside me, standing up, hugging the colleagues, hugging the executive producers and the agents, walking on stage, tripping a little bit. <laughs> but that's charming because I'm down to earth and I'm folksy. Going up. Oh, my God. Oh, this and is so amazing. Bob on stage to go slap. <laughs> <laughs> that's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar, that's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks. This is a tangent. Maybe you'll keep this in and maybe you won't. When Brokeback Mountain came out, Sean and I were really excited to see this movie. And we knew that Brokeback was like trying to win the Oscars. We, we knew it was like, ah, oh, this movie's going to win every Oscar. In fact, we had an inside joke when I was visiting Sean in Vancouver. Sean bought us tickets opening night to go and see it. And anytime there was this theme we thought was good or deep or meaningful... We would just look at one another and pretend we were polishing an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs>